amen. You all may be seated. So much of growing up is watching your parents, isn't it? That we really come into this world not knowing how to do very much. We have a one-year-old in our house, and it is obvious that she's got a long way to go until we can just kind of throw her out of the nest and tell her to be on her way. And more than opening up books and more than going to class, the way that you learn most of the most important things in your life is simply by watching your parents. Now, for all of us who are parents, that's a terrifying thing, isn't it? Because what you begin to learn is that your children began to take on your character. Your children began to exhibit the, the, the same characteristics that are clear in your life. That the way that you carry yourself is the way that they begin to carry themselves. Which is good when you do things that are good, right? But then, all of a sudden, one day, your little four-year-old opens her mouth and she says something that you have said way too many times. And when she says it, it doesn't sound nearly as cute or right or good as when you feel when you say it. Right, And you think, these little sinners, being raised by slightly bigger sinners, right? Because the truth of the matter is, is that we become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. That that which we fix our gaze upon is that which we will eventually begin to be transformed in likeness of. In this is, the image, this is the aim of the Christian life. So much of the Christian life can be summarized as fixing your gaze upon Jesus so that you might become like the one that you behold. Staring at Christ, looking intently at Christ, so that over time the characteristics of your life, the integrity of your life, the trajectory of your life would emulate that of the Lord Jesus. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So Paul is saying, gaze upon Christ. Look at Jesus. Stare at Jesus. Look intently day after day, moment after moment. Fix your gaze upon the Lord Jesus that you might be shaped into the image of the Lord Jesus. That you might carry yourself the way Christ carries himself. That you might speak as the Lord Jesus himself speaks. That you might act and spend and be as Christ is fix your gaze upon Jesus so that your over time may slowly be transformed into the image of Christ himself. This morning what I want us to do is I want us to fix our gaze upon Jesus. I want us to kind of take this morning and just look intently upon Christ and upon the glory of Christ that perhaps by looking at him in all of his glory we might be transformed more into his image, that we might be transformed more into the likeness of his character. So if you have your Bibles, would you stand with me and turn them to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Unfortunately this morning I am breaking in a brand new Bible, so uh, I may not know my way around this one, you know. Everything's different. So you guys just bear with me. Pages are sticking together. I don't even like it. So I, I want my old Bible back, but I lost Ephesians, so I needed a new one. <laughs> That's an important book, right? All right. So 
Matthew chapter 17, we're going to read the first 13 verses together. God's word says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. We spent the last two weeks and the last four verses of Matthew chapter 16, and yet I still don't feel like it's all explained. That Matthew 16 ends with two very enigmatic, enigmatic verses of Scripture. Verses that, when we read them, they kind of they set us back a little bit and make us think, what in the world does that mean? So what I want us to do is, is I'm going to attempt to uh, give an explanation of those last two verses of Matthew 16 by looking at our text this morning. Let's look at those last two verses, verses 27 and 28 together so that I can, you can see what I'm talking about. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death, and they see the Son of Man until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now those are interesting verses, aren't they? Now, and we got the big picture of it, that Jesus is there encouraging his disciples that all of the sacrifices that they will endure on earth will one day re be repaid to them many fold when they are in glory uh, with, with him. But he says in there that some of you, before you die, are going to behold me in the glory of my Father. And we're kind of left like thinking, maybe Jesus doesn't understand this whole second coming thing. That, that, that maybe Jesus doesn't understand because what all of us know is that we're still waiting for the second coming right now. Right? Each of us are saying, praying with John, come Lord Jesus, come. So how is it that some of the disciples are going to behold Jesus in the glory of his Father before, the, they, before they die? How is it that that can be true? And so a lot of liberal scholars point to that. And they say, see, Jesus was not inerrant. Jesus was not infallible. Jesus did not even know the timing of his return. Jesus did not even understand exactly how the kingdom of God was being unveiled himself. See, he thought he was going to come back before Peter died. And he, we all know that he ain't come back yet. Even committed Christians. We read Matthew chapter 16 and we go to the end and we think, that's why I don't like reading the Bible. 
That's why I don't read the Bible. That's why I just need to turn on, you know, whatever show I'm watching, go out, go for a walk, do something, because stuff like that's in there, and I just don't really get it. I don't really understand what's happening. I think for us to understand what's happening in verses 27 and 28 of Matthew 16, we have to understand something that happens frequently over the course of the Bible. Frequently in the Bible, when we come to prophetic texts, it, it reads as though it's all going to be fulfilled at, at one event. It reads as though it's all going to be fulfilled at the same time. Yet instead, it is, it is fulfilled progressively or incrementally over long periods of time. Sometimes hundreds of years, even thousands of years. An example of what I'm talking about would be in Isaiah 9. We know that in Isaiah 9 it says what? It says, for unto us a child is born, a deliverer for the people of Israel. And I'm telling you that Isaiah 9 is going, has been, is going to be fulfilled at least three times. It is fulfilled, first of all, with the birth of an actual human king, Cyrus, who God uses to deliver his people from oppression. But we know that Cyrus does not fulfill the other part of Isaiah 9 that says he will be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Cyrus is a lot of things. He is not the everlasting father. He is not the prince of peace. He is not the wonderful counselor. So it's fulfilled a second time when Christ returns, right? Christ is the greatest, greater Cyrus. Christ is almighty God. Christ is the man God who will come and fulfill and deliver his people from oppression. But Isaiah 9 also says that he will establish and sit upon the throne of David forevermore. That's going to be fulfilled when? When Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back and the kingdom is fully consummated. That Isaiah 9 has got three different parts of fulfillment. It's going to be fulfilled progressively, incrementally over a period of time. And I think when we come to verses 27 and 28 of Matthew 16, that's exactly how we should read it. That, that Jesus is going to incrementally, progressively fulfill the words that he says in Matthew 16, 27, and 28. And I think when we come to the transfiguration, what we are seeing is we are seeing the beginning of its fulfillment. We are seeing the beginning of its fulfillment. That Jesus is going to reveal to three of his disciples before they die, not all of the disciples as he said, he had said it would be some. It is going to be before they die, so they're going to be there, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus is going to transfigure into a, a degree of glory like that of his Father. And they are going to behold it. They're not going to see all of it. They're not going to see everything repaid in that moment. They're not going to see everything fully consummated in that moment. But they are going to see the fulfillment of that prophecy inaugurated. That's why each of the three gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and, uh, and Luke, that give us the account of the transfiguration all precede it with that story. All give us a set time period that links it and shows that there is a relationship between what Jesus has just said and what Jesus is now going to do. So these disciples are here beholding the beginning of Jesus' fulfillment of coming and putting things as they are ought to be. They are going to see it confirmed when they are there and witnesses, eyewitnesses of the risen Christ who went, died, went into the grave and then was raised from the grave three days later. They are going to see what Jesus has been saying is really true. He is really God. Their eyes were not deceiving him. It has been confirmed. And one day, one day, he's going to come back. 
One day he's going to come back and the kingdom will be fully consummated. And there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth. And the disciples will be there to behold as Jesus is repaying each according to what he has done. Now the scene this day, as he begins this fulfillment process, is a remarkable one, isn't it? It's a remarkable one. And I think it's important for us to stop for a second and ask ourselves, why is it that this was necessary? Why is it, was it necessary for Jesus to transfigure himself before these three, three disciples? Now the word transfigure in and of itself is a bit odd to us. I, I'm guessing not many of you talk to your children and say, I hope that one day you'll be transfigured into an honorable man. Uh, I, I, ho- I hope that, that, uh, that you will be transfigured into the image of your father when he is good and not so much when he is not, right? What, what does the word transfigured mean? It, it is literally the word metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is a Greek word that we carry forward into our English language. And so what we know about metamorphosis, that's the word that we use to describe a caterpillar being transformed into a butterfly, right? So so the word transfigure literally means the changing of forms, to go from one form into another form. The image of going from a caterpillar into a butterfly. Now why is it that Jesus had to transfigure? Why is it that Jesus had to transform in any way before his disciples? You see, when the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the flesh was a veil to the true glory of Christ. The veil, it was a veil that that concealed the fullness of Christ's identity so that you couldn't see and know and behold Jesus as he really is. You see, if you were the disciples, we give the disciples a hard time. We're always thinking, man, those clowns just didn't get it. They just never got it. But if you were one of the disciples, you would have been just like them. You know why? The disciples saw Jesus sleep. And the disciples were there probably when Jesus got a stomach virus. The disciples knew that Jesus got hungry and Jesus got thirsty. The disciples knew that Jesus didn't have many friends on earth and was totally rejected in his hometown. The disciples knew that Jesus was often homeless. The disciples knew that Jesus had no political power or influence. The disciples saw Jesus and they saw things about Jesus that made him a man, not God. God doesn't sleep. God isn't powerless. God isn't friendless. God isn't uh, homeless. And here's Jesus. Veiled in human flesh, every one of those things and many more. So the disciples are are seeing Jesus and they're, they're constantly wrestling with whether or not Jesus is actually God. If Jesus is actually the Son of God or maybe he's just a really powerful prophet. Or maybe he's just a great man of God that God just uniquely kind of allows him to do things and say things. And so we come to the transfiguration and Jesus is bringing three, his three lead disciples to him. And he is saying, behold, I am more than a man. Behold, you have been deceived by the veil of my flesh. Behold, you are looking to none other than the eternal son, second in the Godhead, the trinity of almighty God through whom all creation was made and by whom all creation is held together. That on the mountain that day, Jesus was allowing his disciples to see him at least in a degree, to a degree of the way that the Father had always known him. 
They are going to have an opportunity to, to peer into Jesus behind the veil, behind the cloak of flesh, to see the Son, Jesus, the, the Lord Jesus, the way that the Father, the eternal Father, the everlasting Father, has always known him to be. And the image that, that Matthew paints is a startling one. Ma- Matthew, Matthew can almost sense that, like, he's getting this report, right? Matthew wasn't there. So he's getting a report from Peter. And he's getting a report from James. And he's getting a report from, from John. And you can just imagine Matthew sitting there thinking, all right, guys, slow down. Here. Whoa, 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 easy. You saw what? You saw what? Jesus did what? And you can imagine Matthew many years later getting ready to pin this book and, and put together uh, his gospel as he got back. And again, just, how do I tell them about that? How do I explain that? What human words can I use to explain something that is so beyond humanity? What, what, what finite vocabulary do I have to describe something that is so infinitely glorious? And so you, there's a sense, I think, when you read the text, if you slow down and you just meditate upon it, you can kind of see that Matthew seems to be kind of scrambling for words, trying to figure out how he's going to describe what the, the, uh, the other disciples have seen. And so it says that, that, that when they see Jesus and is transfigured into the, into the glory of his Father, that it's like his clothes are made of lights. That they shine so brightly, that they are so, that, that they are so perfectly white. It is though the, the very threads from which they are made are the radiance of light given by the Father himself. That it's a white that is far purer than anything that any of us have ever seen. None of us have seen perfect white. And perfect white is a compilation, a, a manifestation of every color in all of the cosmos coming together to form it. And so in Christ, you see the manifestation, the manifold glories of every color of the cosmos coming and descending into a single being. So that all of, he, all of him reflects back a glorious white so potent to the eye that it would strike you dead were you to see it. It says that his face shone like the sun. What is the brightest thing that a human can describe? The sun. The sun is that which when, when it's hanging overhead at high noon, if we were to look directly at it, it will damage our eyes. We immediately jerk our heads down as often as it comes into direct contact. And so Jesus is being described as having a face that is so bright, so filled with the glory of his Father that his disciples had to shield their eyes for it. The image of Moses having to veil his face in Exodus 34 in the picture that I described earlier, in the passage I read earlier. And what we need to understand, brothers and sisters, is this is only a foretaste. This is only a foretaste of Jesus' real glory. This is only a foretaste of what lies ahead for the risen Christ. In Revelation chapter 21, you know what it says? It says that when Jesus does return and his kingdom is consummated, and there's a new heaven and there's a new earth, that there's not going to be a sun there. And there's not going to be a moon there. And there's not going to be stars there. That there will only be the glory of God and that the glory of God will be a light so potent, so bright that it will go to the edges of the cosmos and eradicate every corner of darkness. That even if the sun was there, 
the potency of the radiance of the light of the glory of God would bleach it out and you wouldn't even be able to see it. This is only a foretaste of what we will know. This is only a foretaste of what we will see one day. Oh, how this day would get them through the hard days ahead. How remembering this day would allow the the disciples that saw it and the disciples that heard it and the apostles that treasured it to get through the hardest days of their ministry. Some years later, Peter would write these words in 2 Peter 1, 16 and 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. You know what First and Second Peter were about? They're about suffering. They're about hardship. They're about dark days on earth. They're about painful days on earth. Struggles that you face as a child of God, as one running after Christ. And, G- and Peter here is closing his eyes, I imagine, and, and meditating back on the glory of the mountain of transfiguration. He is saying, we can get through. We can get through because we have beheld his majesty. We were there when heaven broke forth with the voice of God saying, This is my son in whom I am well pleased. We can get through because that father is our father. And what Jesus has said is always true. He has proven it. So let us remember his majesty. Brothers and sisters today, Lay your eyes, lay your gaze on the glory of Christ. Meditate on the majesty of Christ and then try to be anxious. Lay your eyes on the majesty of Christ and then try to be stressed out about things that don't matter. Lay your eyes on the glory of Christ and remember that what you have seen, the salvation that you know, the spirit that indwells you is nothing more than a foretaste of future glory in which you will be in the presence of God Almighty in the radiance of his glory, eradicating the darkness and the suffering and the struggles of your life to the edges of the cosmos. Is he not glorious, church? Is he not glorious, Even a fracture of what they've seen, even even a degree of his glory for which they were able to behold was enough to get them through on his darkest day. And every child of God has had the opportunity at one point or another to enjoy and to know firsthand the majestic glory of Christ himself. Let us hold fast to it. As remarkable as it was that Jesus was transfigured before them, there are two really impressive guests that make a, sh- make a showing, okay? Now, I think first of all, we see that the guest list of Jesus is an impressive one, okay? Like, like my 31 first birthday's coming up, and, I, and, and if there was going to be a party, you know, you guys are invited, it's going to be good, but you're not going to be real impressed with my guest list, you know? Like, nobody's coming because of who they're going to see. Jesus has a party, Elijah shows up. Moses comes cruising in. That's a party. Isn't it cool to think we're right there with them at his table? We're 
going to be right beside them. So, 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 so you have here Moses and Elijah, and they're coming to, uh, to have a conversation with, with Jesus. Luke tells us, he gives us some specificity about that conversation, and he tells us that they were talking about the departure that was coming. In other words, they were there, and they were talking with Jesus about the cross. They were talking with Jesus about these last days of ministry on earth as he was going to encounter great hardship and great difficulty and great suffering. And I think that what we should see is that the purpose of Moses and Elijah being there on the Mount of Transfiguration is kind of twofold. I think the first reason that they are there is they are there to minister to Jesus. That Jesus is, is heading up a hard road. Jesus is heading down the, the road of, of, uh, of, of passion. He is going to end in agony and end in slaughter and end in what appears to be an apparent defeat. He is going to endure the unfiltered wrath of God. And so I think that you have Moses and Elijah and they're here and they're, they're commending the Son and they're encouraging the Son and they're strengthening the Son. That though he was God, he was also a man. And he dealt with the frailties of the flesh. And the struggles of the flesh. And so here are Moses and Elijah saying, stand firm, son of God. Stand firm, son of God. Hold fast to the will of God and move on. But I think the second reason that they are here is to further reveal the glory of Jesus. At the center of Matthew 17, 1 through 13, is the glory of Christ. That, that the disciples would see Christ as glorious as he really is. And so I think we see here that the reason, the purpose for Moses and Elijah is only to, to further advance their opinion of Christ's glorious. To, to further understand just how majestic and powerful and mighty and good and holy he really is. See, Peter didn't get it. You'll, you'll notice in here that Peter interjects. And Peter says... It's, not, it's good that we're together. Let me go and make some tents for you. Let, let, me, let me make three tents that we can all hang out for a while. I think there's two errors. I'm going to cover the first, first, this one now and then the other one in a minute. And the first error that Peter makes there is he builds all three men an equal tent. That, that in Peter's mind, there's level ground here. I mean, we're talking about Moses. He wrote five books of the Bible. He wrote the Pentateuch. Moses, man. He delivered God's people from Egypt. We're talking about Moses. We're talking about Elijah, considered the first of the great prophets. He called down a pillar of fire from heaven that consumed an altar and the sacrifice too. And then there's Jesus. Think of all the things that Jesus has done. And God interrupts him. Mid-sentence. God breaks forth heaven, having a cloud hover over them, and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. As great as Moses was, as great as Elijah was, the Father wants to make sure that Peter knows, to make sure the disciples know, to make sure that we know Jesus is far greater. Jesus is far greater. Moses was the great lawgiver of Israel. It is Moses that ascends to the top of Mount Sinai. There the the cloud of the Lord, just like on this day, goes and it hovers over the creation, hovers over the mountain. So that from the perspective of the children of Israel, looking up, it appeared as that the whole top of the mountain was on fire because the Shekinah glory of God was resting there. 
Moses is there and, and God gives to him the Ten Commandments. And as he descends the mountain and he comes back down, it says that his face glowed because of his reflection of the glory of God that is upon him. How much greater is the glory of Christ, though? How much greater is the glory of Christ? Moses is, is reflecting a glory that is outside of himself. The glory of Moses, which wears the veil, is a derivative glory. But Jesus' glory bubbles from within. It comes from his very essence. Moses' glory was derivative, but Jesus' glory was essential. It came from him within so that it came out emanating from the very person that he is. Moses went away after time. Jesus' will sustain for eternity to the ends of the age until all the nations proclaim his glory and then forevermore afterward. Jesus is not just the lawgiver. Jesus is the law fulfiller, the one who fulfilled perfectly every word that Moses ever, ever wrote, every commandment that ever came, being the perfect picture of incarnate righteousness and holiness himself. Moses led God's people out of Egypt on a great exodus. He led them into the promised land of Canaan. Oh, but how much more glorious, how much greater is the exodus of Christ when he leads his people not out of Egypt but out of bondage to sin and, 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 and death and the grave. Not into a promised land like Canaan that bears the curse of fallenness, but instead the promised land of glory with whom they will bear his glory forever. Jesus is the greater Elijah. Elijah, as I told you, is the first of the great prophets. Like Moses, like Jesus on this day, Elijah too ascended to the top of a mountain. He was surrounded there by hundreds of false prophets, the people of God there as spectators beholding what he would do. The false gods cut themselves and cried out and screamed, Lord, show up, burn our sacrifice, burn our sacrifice, and yet the heavens were silent. Elijah standing there prays a short prayer of a couple of sentences and a pillar of fire streaks across the sky and lands on the altar and incinerates everything that's there, striking dead the false prophets that were surrounding him. Oh, but how much greater is the Lord Jesus. He is the prophet that doesn't simply speak for God, but speaks as God. He is the one who builds the altar, lays himself there, and then calls down the pillar of fire of God, the very wrath of God, to destroy himself that his people might be delivered. By his hand, all false prophets will be slayed, his name will be vindicated, and his people will be delivered. Jesus is the greater Elijah. One of the things that Elijah and Moses have in death over the course of Jewish history is their death. Their deaths or lack thereof are extraordinary. There are three men in all of Jewish history that are thought to be people that didn't endure death. Enoch, Moses, and Elijah. Bible tells us in Deuteronomy that, that Moses takes the, God's people right up to the edge of the promised land. And God says, because of your lack of faith, you will not take them in. And so he takes Moses up on top of the mountain and the Bible tells us that there is where Moses died and nobody ever knew where his grave was. 
But Jewish history remembered it as being though, as though God himself by his hand pulled Moses from the ground and took him straight into heaven, having not endured the same kind of death that you and I will endure. The Bible tells us of Elijah that when the final days of Elijah had come and Elijah had been commissioned, that Elijah is taken into heaven on a fiery chariot so that he, everybody might know that he was a mighty man of God and that his God was, in fact, the true living God. Jesus' death will be far different, won't it? Jesus' death will be far more painful. Jesus' death will be far less honorable, and yet Jesus' death will be far more glorious. That Jesus will have a death that delivers Moses and Elijah from death forever. That Jesus will have a death that will be apparently humiliating, but ultimately glorifying, because he himself is the greater Elijah, the greater Moses. Calvin tells us that no passage in the whole Bible speaks more to Jesus' voluntary and willing death than this one. That as we see and we behold Jesus in the transfiguration, we behold Jesus unveiling, unmasking himself as the, in the glory of the Father, that everyone that could see him that day knew that that was God that they saw. And the one who transfigured into the glory of his father was surely the very same one that could have delivered himself from the cross. The very same one that could have called the angels to pull him down, to wipe the earth of all of those rebels. And yet Jesus, the transfigured one, the one who gave us a foretaste of his glory, the one who will come and vindicate his name, Jesus went on his own, and he voluntarily hung on those beams and endured those jeers and felt that pain until ultimately he suffocated for our good. The humi- See, the promise of the transfiguration is this, that the humiliation of the cross will only add to his glory. That's the promise of the transfiguration. That the humiliation of the cross will only add to his glory. That the cross might be an instrument of shame for every other man that ever endured its agony. But for the Lord Jesus, the one who will go to the cross as a, sin, as a sinless substitute for sinful men, it will only add to his glory. Because you see, one day when we step into heaven, you know what hand's going to wipe away your tears? A nail-pierced one. One day, those enemies are going to be gathered around the footstool of Christ, and it will be nail-pierced sovereign hands that will slay them and throw them to their torments. But for the rest of human history, for the rest of cosmic history, that the world will be ruled by the gracious, merciful, sinless, pierced hands of the Lord Jesus So much so that all of his people for all of eternity will gather around his throne and say, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We will sing of your humiliation because your humiliation only adds to your glorification. You are the Lamb that was slain for my good and for our good and for the redemption of the world. And as we behold Jesus in his glory on the mountain of transfiguration, we are seeing that he will go voluntarily, and we are seeing that ultimately he will go triumphantly, that we might glory in his crucifixion. And so the cloud comes and it hovers, and the words of God are significant. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is my son who is doing what I have called him to do. You see, Peter had missed it again, right? Peter had missed it again. 
Peter, when he says that it is good for us to be here, let me make tents for us. What Peter was saying was, let's just stay here. Let's just stay here in this company, hang out with Moses, hang out with Elijah. See, Jesus, I told you you weren't going to the cross. See, Jesus, you were obviously wrong about the plan of God. See, God is going to exalt you on earth. Look around you. Can't you behold it? And God interrupts Peter. He says, this is my son with whom I am pleased, and I am pleased with him specifically because he is ignoring what you are saying. I am pleased with him because he has resolved by my spirit and for my glory and for your good to go and be slaughtered on the cross. That he has chosen not to avoid suffering, but to use suffering as a means of glory. And so we come to him this morning and we have the same opportunity before us that Jesus had on that day. It's it's a remarkable thing that God the Father looked down at Jesus and said, I take pleasure in you. I find you delightful. I find your obedience satisfying. I find it glorifying. I find it exalting. I'm, I'm taking pleasure with you. I'm taking delight in you. And yet, as the great uh, church theologian from, the, from a thousand years ago, Anselm, says, he gave a preview of his own glory and the glory of his own. Donald McLeod says the transfiguration showed not only what he would become, but what we would become. What I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is because of the glory of Christ, because of the glory of Christ, every single one of us has an opportunity to bring pleasure and delight to God. We all have an opportunity before us with the choices that we make and the things that we do to bring pleasure to God. How? Listen to him. Listen to him. If you listen to Christ, you bring delight to God. If you obey Christ, you bring pleasure to God. Listen to him that you might walk in the foretaste of glory and realize eternal reward once you get there. Listen to him. Are you a delight to God? Are you a delight to Him? Understand when I say that that we are to please God, I am not saying that we should earn His love. I am not saying that we should in some way do things that will make God love us more. God's love for us is perfect. He cannot love us more. But what I am saying is that you can increase God's delight in you. You know what? I can't love Gracie Kay any more than I love her right now. I love her with everything in me. But sometimes she does things that are kind and it delights me. I see her do things that have moments of honor and integrity and it brings delight to her father. That is the opportunity that we have as the children of God. Having been given such a love as that, having realized such a glory as this, that now we can bring pleasure and delight to God himself. Listen to Christ and delight God. Be a delight to God in the decisions that you may open up your word and commit yourself to. Let your your Bible be stained with tears that you might delight God. Walk against the culture of your high school that you might be a delight to God. Wake up every single day and go to the places that you work. Spend the money that you have. Give the time and energy that you have 
and do every single one of those to the purpose of bringing delight to God, and you will live a life that you will one day look back in recollection and take pleasure in yourself. Are you a delight to God? So what are we to make of chapter 16, verses 27 and 28? Before they died, some of Jesus' disciples glimpsed his glory in the transfiguration. His glory as Savior and God were to be confirmed in the resurrection. We are still anxiously awaiting the consummation. And so we wait together. We wait together as the children of God, bringing delight to God and praying with John, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would fix our gaze on the glory of Christ, that you would fix our gaze on his goodness and on his mercy, that you would fix our gaze on his potency and power, that you would fix our gaze on his interruption of our sin, of his liberation of our wickedness. Oh Lord, I pray that you would see in us as Iron City Baptist Church, as your children, as objects of delight, children of delight, those who live every day to your pleasure, live every day in obedience to your word, listening to Christ, that you might delight in us as you delighted in your Son on that day. Lord, move in our hearts, change our lives through the power of Christ. Amen. This morning, maybe you don't know the Lord Jesus. 